0: It's Monday, June the 14th, 2021. More than 2.3 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist Science Correspondent.
1: And I'm Natasha Loder, the Health Policy Editor.
0: In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race.
1: We're following the vaccine story as it happens.
0: In today's show, we'll explore why Latin America has been hit so hard by COVID 19 and how vaccinations are helping the region to emerge from the pandemic. Hello, Natasha. Welcome back. How was your time off? Great, thanks.
1: I've been learning how to sail, which was wonderful. Um, And in the last few days, I've been following the news from the G7, and I was really pleased to see world leaders promise a billion COVID vaccines by the end of next year. It's not enough. We need lots more. But one really pleasing thing is that vaccine doses from the UK and the US are going to start moving fairly quickly, which is very much what we need to happen right now. How have you been?
0: I've been fine, thank you. It wasn't the same without you, obviously. Obviously. Uh, um, but you know, what I have been doing is reflecting on the fact that this episode, episode 18, is the third from last episode of The Jab. People might not know, but we, we're a limited run. And uh, in, in three episodes' time, we're going to be completely finished.
1: I know. it's It's been amazing to be part of this. And a lot has changed, hasn't it, Alex? since we started?
0: A lot has changed. Um, and in the first episode, back in February, do you remember, just off the top of your head, how many doses of vaccine had been uh, administered back then? Just, get, just a wild stab in the dark.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was... Go on.
0: <laughs> so it was 170 million doses of vaccine. Um, back in February when we started. And now, obviously, as we heard at the beginning, more than 2.3 billion, and that is going up quickly. But as this series draws to a close, I do want to tell our listeners that we're going to be obviously continuing to cover the vaccination story in The Economist and also in our other podcasts. And if you want to know where to listen to all that stuff, where to read all that stuff, then one way of doing it is to go over to your web browser and subscribe to the Simply Science newsletter, which I put together every week. Um, if you subscribe, then every Wednesday, 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 you get a roundup of our best science coverage, which includes other podcasts like Babbage, our science podcast, and The Intelligence, which is our daily current affairs podcast, all of which contain vaccination and coronavirus news. So to sign up for free, go to economist.com slash more science. And now back to this week's episode. Joining us this week is Emma Hogan, The Economist, America's editor. Emma, it's really great to have you here with us.
2: Hi, Alok. Hi, Natasha.
0: Now, Emma, in this week's show, we're going to be talking about Latin America's experience of the pandemic. Now, obviously, it's a very, very diverse region, isn't it? Not every country has been affected in the same way.
2: Absolutely, um, the the countries of Latin America are very different politically, economically, even culturally. But, however, there are some common themes that have emerged in this pandemic.
0: Well, we'll go into all of that in this episode. Uh, next up, we're going to be hearing from an epidemiologist who's been monitoring the impact of COVID-19 across Latin America and can help us understand some of those vulnerabilities. Latin America and the Caribbean have suffered the world's highest number of excess deaths in the pandemic relative to population. Excess death numbers give a more accurate picture of how many lives the coronavirus has claimed, as not all COVID-19 deaths are officially counted as such by individual countries.
3: Across our region, this year has been worse than last year. In many places, infections are higher now than at any point during this pandemic.
0: At a press briefing on June the 9th, the director of the Pan-American Health Organization, Dr. Carissa Etienne, said that while vaccinations will curb the spread of the virus, progress has been uneven only 20% of the region's population has received at least one dose.
3: Today we're seeing the emergence of two worlds. One quickly returning to normal and another where recovery remains a distant future.
0: In the past year and a half, Latin America has been caught in a perfect storm.
4: The most important aspect from my side is that more than half of the population in Latin America are in the informal system. In that sense, they were forced to go out to work and they could not maintain the quarantines.
0: Professor Carlos Castillo-Salgado is an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University.
4: A lot of the most vulnerable population groups, they were living in houses that they were like eight, 10 people from each room. When the government were asking them to stay the quarantine in their homes, well, they infected all the family. But also, uh, if they didn't go out to sell their things, they will die because uh, they need to have some basic income. And the difficulty for the population of the informal system is that they were not receiving any support officially because we're out of the economic system.
0: How would you rate how the various governments
4: responded to the pandemic?
0: Were there good and bad examples of things that they did?
4: There have been some discussions about what is called the Trump effect. Uh, Many of the governments in Latin America, they saw Trump delaying the interventions and rejecting to use the mask and all of that was uh, almost imitated by some governments. And in that sense, they considered that if the United States was able to do that, it was fine for them to do it too.
0: Just following up on that point, which countries have been the worst affected in the region?
4: Well, the most affected has been Brazil, Mexico, and in some countries like Colombia, some regions, they were very good in containing and in other areas were not uh, successful. Uh, Major problems are the social inequalities uh, in which uh, minorities, in terms of ethnicity or social class, they have been disproportionately affected.
0: On the flip side to that, are there places across the region that you think did well and could provide lessons for
4: others? Some mayors in Colombia, uh, some governors in Mexico or in Brazil, they were very active in trying to neutralize the federal recommendations when they were not in favor of the public health uh, interventions. And Chile, in the beginning, they have uh, difficulties uh, uh, in coordinating the EPI and the response from the healthcare system. But uh, after some adjustments, uh, they were working quite well. And now the way they proceed with the vaccination has been a major example.
0: Yeah, the vaccination effort is underway across Latin America, but it's patchy. Why are some countries doing better than others? Is it just about the ones that were organised and got supplies, or are there more complicated logistical reasons for the difference?
4: They were expecting more support from developed countries and the international health regulations required that the rich countries should be supporting the ones that have less capacity. And that has been delaying. I I think it's uh, patchy because uh, they have problems with the buying. Second, the priorities uh, were not done, sometimes uh, adequately, and the operations, For instance, uh, vaccination with Pfizer is very complicated in rural areas.
0: Carlos pointed out some of the common factors that made the region more vulnerable to COVID-19. The informal sector, many generations living in a single household, for example. But we see those things also in many poorer countries that perhaps weren't hit so hard by COVID-19 in the past 18 months. What is it about Latin America, Natasha, that has made it so susceptible, do you think?
1: This is about access to healthcare and resources. It's to do with populations that are growing older and fatter are not raising their expenditure on health care across latin america it's still relatively low percentage of gdp about eight percent that's uh, spent on health and many of these countries have been quite slow in sort of building up primary health care even though they've increased their expenditure on health in recent years and i think it's worth pointing out that obesity is a really major health challenge in latin america and around 57 percent of the adults are overweight uh, and about 20% are obese. And the reason I raise that is that that in itself is an independent and quite serious risk factor for severe COVID.
0: So, so the countries are getting richer, and then that causes the sort of lifestyle-type issues that we see everywhere in the world. But the the systems in place to deal with some of the impacts of those lifestyle issues are not there yet. So it's right in the middle of that Venn diagram, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, And then just to add, I mean, obviously he highlighted a lot of the other issues, of course, which were, you know, multi-generational living and then working in the informal sector. And that just basically means that if you want to eat, you have to keep going out and working. And so you can't stay at home and hide from the virus. And so you're seeing all of these factors at play, I think.
0: Emma, in that conversation I just had with Carlos, he also talked about donald trump and donald trump gave lots of presidents of latin america a bad example and to sort of ignore mask rules and other things do you think that was a big impact too
2: absolutely brazil's government at least gave its citizens emergency aid which is more than could be said for a lot of latin american governments not the least andres manuel lopez obrador's government in mexico But there's also been an incredible amount of anti-vaccination, anti-mask wearing, anti-lockdown, particularly in Brazil. Jair Bolsonaro talked about how vaccines could turn people into crocodiles. Then you've had when Lopez Obrador met with Kamala Harris this week, she was very obviously wearing a mask, whereas the Mexican president was not. So there's been a lot of scepticism towards some basic health procedures.
0: Uh, And uh, Natasha, as Carlos says, not helped by misinformation, right?
1: Yeah, when you look at countries that have had problems with misinformation, I mean, you can even look across to America and India as well. The common issue in these places and in much of Latin America is political polarisation and instability. And during a health crisis, people are looking to leaders for leadership. And in some countries, the attitude has been, well, you know, this is like a war effort and the opposition has decided to sort of keep its criticism fairly muted and not make political capital out of health decisions. But in some countries, that hasn't been the case. And so differences of agreement, perhaps in the scientific community or or uncertainties or vacuums of information have been exploited politically. And that That has been very fertile ground for misinformation and social media. And that's certainly what we saw in
0: Brazil. We're going to be talking about Brazil in a bit more detail later in the programme. But Emma, can I ask you, um, how has the P1 variant of the virus, which was first detected in Brazil, how has that played out across the region? It must have hit its neighbours quite hard too.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we think that it came from Manaus, a city where people thought they had reached herd immunity. I think it's had a huge impact. Even in March, Brazil's recorded death toll was a quarter of the world's total. And that's despite the fact that Brazil has less than 3% of the world's people. P1 is frightening because it can be most, more contagious than earlier virgins, and it's also able to reinfect people. So I think that you know, now that we've seen it in over 30 countries, it's definitely something that has caused big problems in South America.
0: Um, And Natasha, we've talked about vaccine production lots in this podcast before. We've talked about, you know, how Africa is really thinking about improving its own vaccine production. And it's like looking like a very promising thing for several countries in that region. What about Latin America? Uh, What does vaccine production there look like now and in the future?
1: Well, the time to have expanded really, of course, was the middle of last year. And Brazil has two really excellent institutes that, that could have done this. And so that was a missed opportunity. But It is clear all over the world that self-sufficiency in vaccines is now on the agenda and countries that have some experience in making vaccines are very well placed to sort of make the shift into doing more of this. There is, as you know, a lot of talk about Africa. There hasn't been a region-wide effort of that nature in Latin America. But I would be amazed if there isn't some quite serious discussion within Pfizer and Moderna about setting up an mRNA factory in Latin America. Because if you think about it, you know, it's a huge market. They're wealthy. They do spend on health, perhaps not enough. But, you know, vaccines are one of the most economically rewarding investments you can make in health. And so to my mind, it's just only a question of time before this sort of mRNA technology moves into Latin America.
0: To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story that I found interesting recently was about a vaccination drive in the Philippines. The government there wants to encourage more people to have vaccines, so it's running a a prize draw, a lottery essentially. And in the lottery, you could win a brand new house or, or a couple of motorbikes or even a cow. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. Evidentemente, al correr los criterios y ver el número de personas fallecidas, At a press conference on the 31st of May, Peruvian officials, including the Prime Minister Violeta Bermudez, announced that the country had more than doubled its official Covid-19 death toll, following a review. The tally was raised from around 70,000 to just over 180,000. That makes Peru the country with the highest Covid-19 death rate per capita in the world. Back in March 2020, though, the government had been swift to respond to the coronavirus. It imposed one of the earliest and strictest lockdowns in Latin America. Borders were shut, curfews were imposed and non-essential businesses were closed. The government provided financial support to those who'd lost their incomes to encourage them to stay at home. But in spite of those measures, the virus continued to spread at alarming levels.
3: Initially, Peru was applauded for the economic bonuses and the health response and the strong lockdown, but it didn't work. Dr.
0: Valerie Paz-Soldan is the director of Tulane University's Health Offices for Latin America and is based in Peru.
3: We have a very informal economy. A lot of people don't have bank accounts. People may work at a market, they may work on the street, and they just get paid in cash. And so when the government tried very strong economic ways to support the lowest income population, it's very hard to know who is really the lowest income. And To give them money, which is what they did, people had to stand in these huge lines outside of a bank to receive the cash. So even the mechanisms to reach the lowest income people were difficult to operate because of the type of economy that has been operating in Peru. At the same time, during this quarantine, markets became huge grounds for transmission. In most areas of Lima, we have these open markets. In one district, to give you an example, there's 300,000 people who live in that district and there's just one large market to buy all your supplies from. And considering that 40, 50% of the people in Peru don't have refrigerators, they shop daily. You go to a large market, there's a large amount of people, there's a high transmission, and transmission was occurring.
0: Valerie told me that other cultural factors played a part too.
3: In most cities of Peru, which is where the population is centred, People live in multi-generational homes. A lot of families live with aunts, uncles, grandparents, children in the same home. So if you had one person going out to work or to earn a living or find a way to subsist, they could bring the virus home and then the whole house was devastated.
0: On top of that, many of those who became ill didn't receive the medical care they needed.
3: We have an overwhelmed and underfunded health system for decades that's fragmented and that doesn't work together. The primary care level, which is where most of the people get to easily, does not have the right health professionals and they certainly did not have the equipment to be able to manage anyone who was ill. But there's also geographical boundaries to this. We have the Andes Mountains. These are mountains that are extremely high with Some indigenous populations with communities that are very remote and hard to reach. Two-thirds of our territory is an Amazon rainforest with river travel. If people got sick, there were no primary level facilities that could really assist them. Health professionals recused at home because they were afraid of getting it. They didn't have the proper personal protection equipment to take care of themselves. And hospitals were overwhelmed and also were hand-tied because they did not have the oxygens that they needed
0: the oxygen shortage would prove catastrophic.
3: There had been a a law many years ago that set the standards of quality of oxygen so high that many of the small companies went under. So unfortunately, there was a lot of scalping for oxygen. The the oxygen tanks that people needed to survive, first of all, they were not available in the remote areas. And second of all, where they were available, where they had once cost $5, they went up to about $1,000 in some locations. Imagine that you do get COVID. You are looking for oxygen tanks by posting requests for help on Facebook. That's how people would do it. Anybody know where there's an oxygen tank I can get? And if people needed an ICU bed, they would be again posting on Facebook. Anybody know there were Facebook pages that, that were simply to give people information?
0: Vaccines might offer Peru an exit from the pandemic, but for the population of 33 million, the effort has been slow.
3: We have had about 3 million people who've at least reached one dose. It has focused on health professionals. And these recent weeks, we're looking at vaccination of people 60 years and over. So they're already there, but we still have most of the population without vaccines. There's not a lot of vaccine hesitancy. People want to get this vaccine. They're dying to get this vaccine. A lot of the higher classes have flown outside of the country to get this vaccine, but the government is estimating that it'll take 13 or 14 months to get our population vaccinated.
0: Natasha, a few weeks ago, we talked about what excess death figures mean, and um, we talked about the Economist's modelling on this, and. The extent to which the world has underestimated the lives claimed by coronavirus. But can you just remind us, how did countries like Peru get their count so wrong? And it's been a problem in many Latin American countries, Mexico, for example, as well.
1: Yeah, first of all, the official statistics in many countries exclude victims who didn't test positive for coronavirus. And Peru and many other countries in Latin America just don't have the laboratory testing facilities to do those tests. They don't have the capacity. Another problem is that hospitals and civil registries may not process death certificates for days or even weeks, and that creates sort of long lags in the data. And then lastly, the pandemic has really made it much more difficult for doctors to treat other conditions, and that can cause an indirect increase in fatalities from other diseases than COVID. And so all those three things are what are creating this hidden iceberg of excess deaths that we're seeing, particularly in Latin
0: American countries. Something that struck me from talking to Valerie was how she described, and she kept coming back to this, how she described that there are so many parts of Peru that are just very, very hard to reach um, with various indigenous populations. It's incredibly hard to reach them for primary health purposes, actually. Never mind vaccines that have to be stored in particular conditions. There's no way you can get things like the Pfizer vaccine, which requires like a really severe cold chain. And so those are additional problems that perhaps many people in the West haven't been thinking uh, so much about, which also could account for some of the differences in, in the response and then the numbers, of course, in the official death tolls. Emma, Peru did put down strict lockdowns right at the beginning of the pandemic last year. But do do you think that the Peruvian government was trying to react to the pandemic in a way that worked in richer Western countries, but just wasn't right for Peru's situation?
2: Well, it's hard to know the counterexample. I mean, how bad would the deaths have been if there hadn't been a lockdown, for example? But I think that, I mean, what Valerie said about how 70% of people work in the informal economy there, And as she said, 40% of people don't have access to a refrigerator. So you're going to have a lot of people who have to go out to work or have to go out to get food. And I think that probably the lockdown affected the economy quite badly. I mean, Peru's GDP fell by 11% last year. So without fiscal stimulus, without uh, emergency aid, that's going to affect people very badly, as well as with covid We've already seen it politically. On June the 6th, Pedro Castillo, a left-wing former school teacher who has basically never been in politics, became president with a very slim margin. Uh, But this is a huge moment in in Latin American politics that really is a turn to the left. And I think that is partly because of the negative economic effects of lockdown. So, While it's impossible to know whether it was the right answer for the country in terms of its public health, definitely there are big questions over whether it was the right thing for its economy.
0: And Natasha, given Peru's death toll, should this country be one of the top priorities globally for donations of vaccines um, through things like COVAX and others?
1: Well, the difficulty here is that when you prioritise countries that have severe outbreaks, vaccines take time to have an impact And what we've seen is that rich countries, which have had plenty of vaccine and they've had outbreaks, all the kind of work of reducing those outbreaks has been done with lockdowns, not with vaccinations, and that the vaccinations basically have taken the best part of this year so far to have an effect. And so what that means for countries like Peru, for countries that are going through outbreaks is that any vaccine that arrives is going to come too late to control the actual outbreak. What it could do is it could help healthcare workers. So if you prioritize sending vaccines that are particularly effective, like the Pfizer vaccine to healthcare workers, they are going to get some degree of quite good protection starting from 11 days after the first dose. So that is certainly worth doing. But what this all means is that as we think about vaccines starting to flow through the COVAX mechanism, the G7, and there's been some commitments, it means that we need to try and make sure the vaccine is delivered widely to many countries, because we don't know where the next outbreak is going to be. And we need to prioritise first getting 3% of a country's vaccines needs to all countries, and that will allow it to do the healthcare workers. And then after that, the next tranche needs to be enough to cover the vulnerable, the elderly. And that's the way we will tamp this virus down.
0: In Latin America and the world at large, Brazil has been one of the countries worst affected by the pandemic. It's recorded more than 17 million infections and more than 475,000 deaths with COVID-19. But in Sahana, a town of 45,000 people in the state of Sao Paulo, an unprecedented experiment has taken place. Between January and April this year, more than 95% of adults there were fully vaccinated with Coronavac, a Chinese shot for the coronavirus.
3: The 86% the On the 31st of
0: May, Ricardo Palacios of Brazil's Butantan Institute, which ran the study, announced the
3: results. <laughs>
0: Deaths with Covid-19 fell by 95%, showing, he said, that the epidemic can be controlled through vaccination. It's a testament to the efficacy of the Chinese vaccine, but it also indicates what Brazil as a whole could achieve. Natasha, you have been following this story for some time now, haven't you?
1: Yes, Sarah Maslin, the Economist's Brazil correspondent and I started talking about this in February when the study was underway and just after the results came out, we had a fascinating chat about her trip to Sahana and what this vaccine study means.
5: Sahana is a very typical Brazilian town. It's surrounded by sugarcane fields and it has a local square with a church where people congregate. And it was really heartening to go there last week. Brazil's had a really rough ride with COVID. And in Sahana, people were out and about and businesses were open. Why was Sahana chosen for the study? Most importantly, it's small enough that they could vaccinate everyone, but big enough that it had a good sample size for the study. But also, it's a commuter town, so it had very high rates of COVID-19 in 2020. So the preliminary results of the study
1: are now out, and it seems like they're pretty positive.
5: Right. Symptomatic cases fell 80% and deaths fell 95% after nearly all of adults had been vaccinated. Now, only two COVID patients remain in the local clinic. Both of them, unfortunately, refused the vaccine. So, I mean, that's a fantastic result from that
1: trial. Do you have a sense that people feel more relaxed today in the town about the pandemic?
5: Well, in some ways, yes. And that was really what I was expecting. I was thinking that I would arrive and people would be out and about in crowds with no masks in the restaurants and the bars. So uh, you did have some of that. When I went to the local square, which is a beautiful little spot with a fountain and Little kids running around. I came across a group of older men, including a ninety-seven year old, who all grew up in Sehana and for years have been meeting on some benches in the corner. Aqui na nessa banca. Essa place é essa mesmo, né? Which is a very typical Brazilian thing. They talk about soccer and what the town was like in past generations. But, you know, they stopped during the pandemic, have recently started up again because of the positive results of vaccinations. But they also were scared. As soon as I showed up, half of the group scattered. And one of the men joked and said, you know, we're still scared about this there's still a lot of covid in surrounding towns we don't know what's going on with these variants so there is a sense of relief but it's not at all a, you know total tranquility
1: thinking about the results of this trial i mean what do you think the implications are for
5: the rest of the country So the main reason that Butantan Institute, which produces Coronavac in Sao Paulo, decided to do this study is because Coronavac had efficacy rates as low as 50% in phase three trials. That's the minimum required by the World Health Organization. And the lower the efficacy, the higher the share of people who have to be jabbed to slow contagion. So they wanted to figure out what that share was. And convince people that despite these low efficacy results, this vaccine is really effective. So what they did was they split people up into 25 geographic clusters, and each of those was assigned to one of four groups, and those four groups got jabbed in four successive weeks. I interviewed Ricardo Palacios, who led the study, and he said that the most interesting discovery is what happened with that very last group the rate of contagion started going down before they'd received two doses of the vaccine, which basically meant that the other groups of already vaccinated people were acting as a shield for them. So that result suggests that the herd immunity line for this vaccine is around 75%. So does that mean that we could start to
1: see these effects in other parts of Brazil sometime soon?
5: Well, Unfortunately, 75% is a long way off for Brazil. As a whole, only 11% of people are fully vaccinated, and the rate has actually slowed in recent weeks due to shortages of the active ingredients for this vaccine, which are imported from China. That's also true for the AstraZeneca vaccine. But actually, what this experiment shows is that Brazil could be much further ahead with vaccines if it had taken different steps months ago. First, by mounting an effective public health campaign, and second, by buying vaccines. The president, Jair Bolsonaro, ignored offers from manufacturers like Pfizer for months and months and instead took to social media to spread fake news about jabs. At one point, when asked why Brazil was holding up approval for the Pfizer vaccine, he joked that jabs could turn people into crocodiles. I mean, surely, you know, the results
1: from the Sahana trial are going to put him under pressure to change his tune.
5: Yes. And the governor of Sao Paulo that Has been overseeing this study as his most fierce political rival. So Bolsonaro is now saying that Brazil is going to vaccinate everyone by the end of the year and has at least gotten on board with the idea that vaccines could be a helpful thing for the country. But they are a long way off, and that makes me think of what. I was told by a man named Florivaldo Leandro, a retired police officer I met in the plaza in Serrana.
3: As um pouco que se conscientizar...
5: He said that people in the town were forced to become more COVID conscious because they lost so many friends and family members. So really what happened in Serrana is an encouraging result. It's a path for the country to follow, but It's also a reminder that people in Brazil are still very scared and their leaders still need to take this virus more seriously.
0: Natasha, can you reflect on the Sahana study for us? Um, It's an amazing result, but what are the takeaways for you?
1: Look, vaccines work. And what's happened in Brazil is a tragedy that need not have happened and a tragic missed opportunity. And it really shows what happens when leaders make political mileage out of public health and they ignore the science. And the failure of Bolsonaro to buy or even develop vaccines is just such a massive scandal, I think. And I hope that people remember this in Brazil, especially when they go to the next election.
0: Yeah, Emma, it's interesting. What do you think the impacts of this study will be across Brazil and across the region, actually, as well?
1: Well, I hope it will increase
2: vaccine uptake in the region when, when there are vaccines available for people. I mean, as Sarah said, and as she outlined in a tremendous special report a couple of weeks ago, vaccine uptake in Brazil is not great, and not least because of President Bolsonaro's decision to reject. I believe a Pfizer executive said that President Bolsonaro rejected six offers from the company to get the vaccine. So this is a rare bit of good news in a region that has unfortunately been really badly affected by COVID-19.
0: Emma, um, would you give us a bit of a background on Brazil's vaccination drive more broadly? What have been the big stumbling blocks it's had? Obviously, the rejecting the, the Pfizer vaccines in the first place, that was, that was one.
2: I think that's the biggest one, to be honest with you. But there's also... Two former health ministers have said to a parliamentary commission of inquiry that's looking into the government's handling of the pandemic that the initial strategy rested on herd immunity and an anti-malarial drug. So these really are not the way to be handling a pandemic. Uh, Combined with that, you have President Bolsonaro talking about getting the army to stop people enforcing a lockdown. Often it's the other way around. You have the army enforcing a lockdown. Um, so I think you know it's mostly been a political mess that has created the problems in Brazil. There are obviously the demographic problems we've talked about and informal sectors and so on. But I, I really think that it just shows how handling a pandemic, you need to have politicians who can make the right decisions.
0: And Natasha, just final word to you then. Brazil has been the watchword in the past 18 months for bad handling of the pandemic in, in many, many, many ways. And uh, people there have suffered... Do you think that this excellent study and this promising result could turn things around?
1: What's interesting about this piece of work is that it's very specific, it's personal, it's something that everyone can understand, all these people in a town are now protected, but it's also been scientifically done. And so it does represent an ideal and something that people across Latin America can look at and say, look what happened in Sahana. Why can't we do that here? And that provides a sort of social proof in a way that will encourage others to get vaccinated.
0: And that has to be the hope, doesn't it? Because Latin America, as we've discussed in the programme, is a diverse place with many, many difficulties in terms of public health. And it's had a perfect storm of problems from political to economic that's caused the region to have possibly the worst impacts from COVID-19. But I think Sahana is really a really good example of what can happen and what should happen. Now, before we go, are there any stories that jumped out to either of you this week?
2: Well, so this, this has been an ongoing story for a couple of weeks now, but I, I don't think enough of our listeners probably have come across it, which is in Mexico, in order to encourage people to get the jab there's a variety of performances that are happening in the vaccination centres. So you've got operatic singers singing, you've got uh, yoga happening. And my favourite one is that you've got Lucia Libra wrestlers who are doing things like do do the limbo. Um, So this is to encourage people, particularly elderly people, not to feel uh, worried about getting the vaccine.
0: Now, while I support this, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do, and I do, I do stress that singing is not great for this pandemic. No, this is, indeed, this is indeed. one of those things that you want to be doing far away from people and outside. Possibly,
2: I hope, <laughs> I hope that the singing is happening behind masks. Uh,
0: but, right, but uh, yeah. Good. It's always up to me to bring these things down, isn't it? Uh, Natasha, anything from you?
1: Yes, I have actually. Um, this is actually pointed out to me by Slaver, who was in the chair last week. She noticed that cannabis stores in the US state of Washington are now offering free marana cigarettes to people who've had their jab. Um, and it's called Joints for Jabs and so you get vaccinated on the premises and then you get your your joint um which of course you presumably shouldn't then light up and then share with your neighbor because obviously as we know vaccines take time to work
0: and we shouldn't be doing well. like that
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like it that you preempted Alok's criticism of, of that story Natasha I I'm I'm
0: chill <laughs> Natasha Emma thank you both very much indeed
1: Thanks Alok thanks Alok
0: That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast and the editor is John Shields. If you like this podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us at radio at And if you've got any questions about vaccinations or COVID-19, then please do send them into that email address too. And we'll try and get them answered in the next few episodes of The Jab. While you're looking at our podcast, do check out Checks and Balance, our sister podcast about American politics. The most recent episode is about how America's vaccine success could impact its leadership on the world stage, as Joe Biden makes his first trip abroad. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more on The Jab next week, when we'll be exploring the next generation of COVID-19 vaccines.